Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Science of the Covenant podcast. Once again on this holy, blessed Shabbat. We are the Science of the Covenant, and I am Boyce Washington, and on the other side of me is the Pastor Richard Washington, and we want to welcome you on this holy day. If you have any questions or comments while this podcast is live, or even afterwards, please feel free to email us at scienceofthecovenant at gmail.com. And before we get started, I want to also, as always, give praises to the Most High, Yahuwah, and His Son, Yahushua, who died for our sins, that we may have a chance at eternal life. If you have been tuning in, and if you haven't been tuning in, the pastor has been uh, giving us some teachings on the seed. They have been very interesting and very uh, enlightening. So if you haven't heard any of the other series, please tune in to our podcast to catch up. And we hope you enjoy it. If you have anything that maybe you want the pastor to speak on and questions, like I said, feel free to email us at scienceofthecovenant at gmail.com. So, Pastor, what are we going to be dealing with today? Okay, this is our sixth section on the science of the seed, part number six. Uh, what we want to do today, we want to look at something that is quite significant. It's about the seed, but what we want to do is to look at some polemics as to how the Father and the Son are related. We, we want to look at that because this is laying the foundation for when we actually deal with uh, Elohim's seed. So that's what we want to proceed with today is to look at uh, if uh, the son of Elohim is his son, and if he were not his son, then we want to look at some of the ramifications of that. So I think the discourse will speak for itself. So that's where we'll be, is trying to look at the relationship of the father and the son. Let us pray. Eternal Father, we thank the privilege of again being able to discuss your word and that your word may be uppermost in our minds, Lord, that as we study and meditate upon it, as you've declared in your word, we want to meditate upon your word day and night, keep our minds occupied with this plan of salvation. For as this world closes, so Heavenly Father, it is only reasonable that our minds stay upon this that of salvation because as we take our minds off of it, we know the enemy will take over our minds. So we want to have psychological salvation in such a way that we meditate upon your word day and night that it might be able to feed us and to help us to comprehend the things that you have for us. Bless my host, bless me, and bless each one who listens. These blessings and others we ask in the name of Yeshua the Messiah and for his dear sake we do pray. Amen. Amen. And amen. Amen. Okay, well, what we want to do uh, at this point, we want to turn to John, I mean, not John, but Genesis. And here in Genesis, we want to look at chapter 1, and we'll look at verse 26, and I just want the top part of Genesis 1, 26. So here in Genesis 1, 26, it says, and Elohim said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, 
Okay, we want to concern ourselves with that. He said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. Okay, now, in addition to that, we want to use a, another text in Genesis, then we want to turn to the book of Luke. Now, the other text that we want to uh, read here in the book of Genesis is found in Genesis chapter 3. And in Genesis chapter 3, we want to look at verse uh, number 15. This is a familiar text with a lot of us and theologians have given us the understanding of this text. It said, I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. Now we notice that there are two seeds here. There's a seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. Now we know in previous studies, and no doubt we'll be dealing with this again, is that when we dealt with uh, the subject on Mariology, which was the study or the science of Mary, we discovered that she had a seed, and that was the seed of the woman. And we found out that that seed was put there by the power of the Holy Spirit. So that was Elohim's seed that he put within her. So when we talk about the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, the seed of the woman was the Messiah that was to come. Now, we want to turn, with that in mind, let us turn to the book of Luke. And in the book of Luke, we want to look at chapter 3, very important passage here. So we looked and said, man was made after the image of Elohim. And then when man sinned, Elohim is saying, I'm going to give you another, um, I'm going to give the seed of the woman. And the seed of the woman would be the Messiah that was, was to come. Now, notice what it says here in uh, chapter 3 of the book of Luke. And we're going to look at two verses, and those verses are 21 through 22. Book of Luke, chapter 3, verses 21 through 22. And here's what it says. It says, Now, when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Yeshua, also being baptized and praying, the heaven was open, and the Holy Spirit descended in a bodily shape like a dove upon him, and a voice came from heaven, which said, Thou art my beloved son, in thee I am well pleased. So here from heaven, when the power of the Holy Spirit came down upon Yeshua in the form of a dove, the Father's voice spoke from heaven, said, This is my beloved son. So from heaven, he said, This is my son. So, so some of the things that we need to understand in our mind, if he's saying that this is my son that is being baptized, did he become the son simply because he came through Mary's womb, or was he the son even before he left heaven? Because if he was not son before he left heaven, then what are we saying? Are we saying that he was not his son in heaven, but when he was born here on earth and he was baptized, then he became his son? Now, if we take that line of reasoning, we, ha we would have to say that if he was not his son when he left heaven, then Elohim is not telling the truth when he said this is his son. Because if he became his son through Mary's womb, then he would be Mary's son. But that's not what we studied. We studied that he was a father's son. So in the theology of the Christian teaching is that the son of Yah only became such as when he was given birth by Mary in a manger. Now, some polemics say, 
when Yeshua was in heaven prior to coming into this world, he was a son in title. And this word son in title would mean that he was not actually in actuality a son, just in title. So let us consider some of the polemics that we encounter concerning when Yeshua became Yah's son prior to the coming to this earth. That's what we want to look in that. You know, prior to coming to this world, who was he? Okay. Now, if we say that he was a son just in title but not in actuality, then there's a lot of questions that we, we need to look at. So one of the things that we look at, uh, can we have a fatherless son? Can a son be a son without a father? So if we entertain the idea that Yeshua was a son of Yah without coming forth from his father, then we are up against a number of arguments which would need a great amount of explaining and clarification. We will start with the argument that many claim that Yeshua in heaven was equal with the Father and that they both have existed together from the days of eternity. Moreover, some, some go so far as to say that the Father, that the Father could have come and the son could have been the father and remained in heaven. That's that the, a lot of these, this, this is taught in our schools of theology today that the father could have come and the son could have stayed in heaven or the son could have stayed in heaven and the father came. I mean, and a lot of stuff like that. And those who believe in a Trinity state that any of the three could have come down from heaven as the son. In other words, they said the father could have come, the son could have come, or the Holy Spirit could have come and, and, and have been the son. Now, if we say that Yeshua was not Yah's son in actuality, but only in title given unto, unto him when he came to this earth, at his incarnation. So they're saying, well, you know, in heaven, what we had, we had, we had what they call God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. And they are saying that any one of them could have come down to earth to be the Son. Now, such reasoning as this poses a number of inconsistencies, both in the nature of, and the scriptures of truth, okay? So we're dealing with both the nature and the scriptures. First, we would have to ask ourselves the question, how can one claim sonship without actually and literally being a son in the sense of coming forth from a parent? You know, we, we, we would have to ask that question. How can you become a son and you don't have a parent? In other words, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all existed from eternity. They all have been existence all of the time. So if Yah's Son is claiming that he, like his Father, has always 
been in existence and that there was never a time which he was not. Now, the question we would follow up with this type of reasoning is, how did the father, which calls himself an Elohim, and his son, who also calls himself an Elohim, decide which one would be the father and which one would be the son? How did they decide that? So here we have two Elohims who have existed simultaneously together from all eternity past because of the transgression of Adam, which eventually corrupted the entire human race. One of them would have to come down from heaven to die for man. At random, one chooses to remain in heaven, and the other chose to come as the son. All right. So you had two Elohim. You got the son and the father in heaven, and they both existed at the same time, and you got the Holy Spirit. And now that man sinned, in order to redeem him, you have to have somebody come and die for him. So how did they decide who was going to come? Was it going to be the Father, the Son, or the Holy Spirit? How, how did they decide all that? I can find no explanation nor arrangement of such in the Scriptures. If they were co-equal in their existence, not only do we have a problem with how they decided which one would be delegated to be in the role as the father and which one would be in the role of the son? How did, how did, how did they determine that? Now, if we said they co-equal, they have always, they, they existed all of the time and there was never a time that they didn't exist and one did not come from the other. How did we decide? How how did they decide who was going to be the son and who go, who was going to be the father? How how did they decide that? But we also have a problem of knowing which one of them led out in the discussion of making these choices. Since we do not have any scriptural evidence that such a scenario of this taking place we would have to leave such thinking as this to the theological to theological speculation and human conjecture to pursue such a line of reasoning as this seems almost preposterous that two elohims would even appear to fabricate such a story as this why would there logically be a need to falsify their identity by exalting one L as the father and abasing the other as the son, rather than uplift one to the fatherhood and to lower the other to sonship, couldn't they have easily said that they are two Elohims which have been in existence for some time? having the same time, having the same power, having the same authority, having the same ability, having the same substance, if Scripture would have stated this, I would have no problem in accepting it. There are many things already I don't understand 
or can explain, yet because the scriptures declare, declared it, then I can believe it. I, don't, I can't explain the incarnation, but the scripture says it, so I believe it. So why couldn't he? That they have just said that my father and the son, we have already existed. But there's no nothing in scriptures that says that. If they were co-equals and told so in the word, I believe, I could accept it. If the one who takes the role as a son on earth will he resume to take back his co-equal status when he returns back to his heavenly kingdom. So if Yeshua was Elohim in heaven and he had a certain position, when he go back to heaven, would he also maintain that same position? Moreover, when Yeshua was on earth, why didn't he refer to his father's kingdom as the father's kingdom seeing that both of them were co-equal. Why would he call it his father's kingdom if they were co-equal? Wouldn't he call it also the son's kingdom? But he's calling it, calling it the father's kingdom. If they were co-equal, why don't the Bible state this? Some individuals say that the reason why he didn't state this in his word is because we wouldn't have understood the way that Elohim understands father and son relationship. Now, isn't that something? We wouldn't have understood that. Well, if we wouldn't have understood it, then it seems like what is being presented is so confusing that who understands that? So if that is the case, how much is this co-equality not understood? It is most confusing. So if we don't understand co-equality, which is something man has put out there, uh, how much confusion can you have with the father and the son? That seems like that's the most understandable concept in the world, is that when a father have a son or a daughter or somebody, we understand that. And and, 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 and and they are saying that we don't understand a, 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 a father and son relationship when it comes to the, when it comes to Elohim, but we understand it when it comes to humans. Now what is the difference? They are both uh, in the same category of having a father and a son. So what would be confusing about understanding that? So if the scriptures actually taught that there were two Elohims who were co-equal, I think we could accept the line of reasoning. We may not quite understand it, but it could at least be substantiated by the scriptures. The main inconsistencies I see with this co-equality of the Elohims is that I find no mention of such in the Torah or the other writings of the scriptures. There is nothing that talks about the co-equality of the father and son. Now, some claim that Yeshua became Yah's son when he was born of Mary in, in a manger, and we covered some of that. Now, if Yeshua became the son of Yah only when he was birthed into this world by his mother Mary, then such a theory as this 
would present a number of discrepancies. Let us consider some of the inconsistencies this type of polemic presents. This first polemic we pre present is what we call the creation birth, the creation birth. Now, the creation birth. In this particular discrepancy, we, we are considering Yeshua to becoming Yah's son only after he enters into creation. If Yeshua became Elohim's son only after he was birthed into this world, let us examine some of the ramifications of this creation birth. First, if Yeshua only became Yah's son upon entering into this world by Mary's womb, then naturally we must ask the question, who was he prior to coming into this world? So the question which confronts us at this juxtaposition is, who was Yeshua in the pre-creation of this world? Before this world ever existed, who was he? When we consider who Yeshua was prior to the creation of this earth, we can only narrow him down to one or two beings who existed at that time. He could only have been Yah or Elohim or an angel. Those are the only two beings because angels were created before man. So who was Yeshua before he came to this world? Was he Elohim? Or was he an angel? He couldn't have been an angel. So if we say that he was Yah in the pre-creation, then there are still some questions which present themselves, which are craving for answers. Let us pursue some of them in what we would refer to as the pre-creation questions, the pre-creation questions. So in the pre-creation questions, if we say Yeshua was was God or Yah in heaven, then we asked the question, was there any other Elohim beside him? What makes this question pertinent is that if he was the only Elohim existing before the creation of this world, then did he alone decide to create the heavens and the earth all by he himself. If he take the premise, if we take the premise that he alone created all things, we would have to logically draw the conclusion. Uh, we would have to draw the following conclusions. If we say that Elohim or Yeshua, he was the only one existed. There was no other. He was the only one. Now, if you, if Yeshua were the only one, Yah who created heaven and earth, this would mean that he alone was responsible for its creation and no other but him. You see, if we say that he only, when, when, when he came from heaven, let us say he was the only Elohim, and we'll be dealing, going back to the co-equality co, uh, the, the co, uh, again. We'll go back to that. But we are saying, let us say he was the only one that existed. He was the only one that created the heavens and earth. Moreover, as we say that Yah made a plan of salvation 
before the creation of this world, then who did he make it with? Okay. So if we say that he made a plan of creation and then he made a plan of salvation before the world was created, then who did he make that plan with? If he were the only God or Elohim, then he made it with himself. This poses another question. If he alone created the heaven and the earth without any assistance of any other Elohim, what could he have meant when he said in the book of Genesis, let's let go back to Genesis 1 and in Genesis 1, 26. Okay, we're saying if Yeshua was the only Elohim in heaven, okay, that existed, what could he have meant when he says in Genesis 1, 26, and let, and Elohim said, let us make man in our image. Okay, so if he, so if he was the only one in existence creating the heavens and the earth and mankind, what did he mean when he said, let us make man in our image after our likeness? When it was only he alone, if he was there by himself, why would he say, let us? When it was only he alone, why would he speak? Why would he speak in the plural rather than speak in the singular? Why not say, let me make man in my image and my likeness? Why would he say, let us? If, it was, if he was the only person. This would also mean that prior to creating this world, when he had in mind to have a plan of salvation, it was only to know, it was only known to he himself alone. He made a plan of salvation only with himself. If we say he was the only one, the only Elohim in heaven that created the heaven and the earth and the plan of salvation, that means that when he said, let us, that's a question. And then that would mean that he alone would have to provide a plan of salvation. And with this line of reasoning, assuming he was the only Elohim in existence to create to, uh, uh, to, to cre to the creation, then when he eventually brought all things into existence, then we would ask the question, a very pertinent question, and that question is, could Elohim die? Could Yah die? Now, if Yeshua were the only Elohim of the universe, this would pose a number of questions once he actually created this world. At this juxtaposition, let us concern ourselves with the pre-creation questions from the standpoint of an only one Yah in existence. Only one Yah in existence. Okay, now, when we read again in Genesis 1.26, what does it say? Let us make man in our image and likeness. Let us. So when Elohim said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, such a statement as this, as far as man is con is concerned is pre-creation due to the fact that he had had come that man had not come into existence yet so he's talking about making man but then when he says 
we're going to make man. He said, said, let us, not let me, but let us. So let us make man is a statement made in the anticipation of making him. So when it was said, let us, who is the us? We can only assume, and rightly so, that the us refers to the father and his son. The question we pose at this juxtaposition is, who of the two that is making this statement and to whom is the father saying this to his son or is his son saying to his father, let us make man? So who is saying the statement? Is the father saying this to the son or is the son saying it to his father? We need to understand that. I would think that if the son came forth from the father, who was in the father's image and likeness, that it was the father saying to his son, let us make man in our image and likeness. By Yah always having been in existence and he being this and the son being the seed or the father being the seed carrier, it would be more plausible for the father to make this statement to his son rather than a son to his father. However, if there were only one L presence when this statement was made, how then do we justify the us in this particular statement? So in this part of our uh, studies, we want to establish the coexistence of Yah and his son we will do this first by pointing out the fallacies that there is only one L. That people say there's only one 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 L. Well, let's let's see the fallacy of that. Okay, if there's only one L, that means that there's there's only one person responsible for both the creation and salvation. So if we substantiate that there's only one L. He's the only one that is there, then he's the only one that would be responsible for creation and salvation. And we will do this by the Socratic method. As we use these questions to probe into the understanding as to why there would have to be a coexistence rather than one L in creation. So let's make that clear. It had to be at least two Elohims. It had to be at least two instead of one. It had to be. Now, if there was only one L who created the heavens and the earth, then once having made them, who would be responsible for them? He alone who created the heavens and the earth, he, then he alone would be responsible for the creation and he would be responsible for the salvation. He would be responsible for both of them if he created them alone. So if there were only one creator in the creation of this world, it would naturally follow that it would only be one creation to make man. If only one creator was responsible for making Adam, we would have to challenge the statement in Genesis 1:26 as to why he says let us 
So we reiterate the premise, if there were only one L as the creator of man, it would only be logical, it would only logically follow that he alone would be responsible for him. So if he made man, there was no other Elohim but him, that means that he was totally responsible for Adam by himself. As we pointed out earlier, he was responsible for the man he made, and he made a plan of salvation for him prior to Adam's fall. Why didn't he make this plan with others, with, with, with another than himself? Why would he just make it with himself? And if we say Yah was working by himself, then there are some major concerns we would need to examine. So if he was the only Elohim, no other one, and now he found that man sinned and he made a plan of salvation only with himself, then we have some questions we need to answer. If Yah all by himself brought about both the creation and salvation, let us look at some of the ramification of such an argument. If, as we pointed out in the creation of man, he said, let us make man in our image and likeness, how could such a statement be made if he alone made man? Why not say, let me, rather than let us? There could not have been any other being to have been present to make this statement too. He didn't need to say let us because he wouldn't have been talking to nobody but himself. There certainly could have been an angel to whom he said this too because angels, he couldn't have said it to an angel because angels are not made in his image. He couldn't say to an angel, let us make man in our image. Because angels were not made in his image. Only man was made in his image. So it couldn't have been an angel that was there. So, if he were talking to himself in the plural, what sense would that have made in that he only is one person? Moreover, it would not seem feasible that Elohim could make heaven and earth and all mankind with no assistance to be able to sustain his creation and to redeem fallen man. For the mere fact that he is all-knowing of all things, he knew man would transgress. He knows all things. He knew man was transgressed. So if he knew man was going to transgress and he made a plan of salvation all by himself, how would he say How would he save man? Because Elohim cannot die. At this just a position, we want to ask two pertinent questions. The first question is, why wouldn't why would it be necessary to have two Elohims? Why would it be necessary to have two gods? Why? And the second question is, why was it necessary to have a plan of salvation in place prior to the fall of mankind? So let us probe into the philosophical questions, staring, starting with the question one. 
we refer to this first question as the doctrine of isolation, the doctrine of isolation. And we'll call it the philosophy, the philosophy of loneliness. Okay, and we want to turn back to Genesis. And as we look in, in the book of Genesis, we want to uh, look at verse number uh, verse number 18. We want to look at Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18. Okay, now in Genesis 2.18, it says this. And Yahweh Elohim said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him and help meet for him. Okay, so when we talk about the philosophy of loneliness, what we're looking at is Elohim said to man, it's not good that you be alone. So when we speak about the philosophy of loneliness, it has to do with being by oneself or being alienated from species of one's own kind. In our text, Yah said of man, he has, that he has created, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him and help me for him, for man to live alone was not the ideal state for him, to exist, however, for Yah to assert such a state would, to some degree, imply that he himself doesn't thrive alone. Okay. So he's telling man he shouldn't be alone. So if what he's telling man would that also be good for himself, that he being Elohim to be alone. For the mere fact that he created angelical beings and anthropological beings is suggestive of him not living alone himself. In this great creation of his, would not he want to share it with someone? If it is not good for man to be alone, I would think to some degree that Yah is not, is not good for Yah himself to be alone. So, to some degree, we can say of Yah, it is not good for him or he himself to be alone. Could not we pose the question that something in eternity, said some time in eternity, he too was alone until his son, his son came forth. Can we say that man's highest state of existence is that of his sharing his existence with his fellow man? If this is true of man, would not this also be true of Yah, that his highest existence would be to share with a being of his own kind? If our highest state of existence is to be with beings of our kind, why wouldn't it be any difference with our creator? Why wouldn't he deny himself of the very thing that he tells us that it is not good to be? It would seem to me 
that there had to be at least two Elohims in existence, at least two, to both share in the creation of this universe and to share in the appreciation of it. If we say that Yah was alone in his creation, a lonely creation this was. Now, let us pursue our next question. The next question that we had posed was, which is, why was it necessary to have a plan of salvation in place prior to the fall of mankind? And we refer to this second question as the doctrine of affection. And we'll call it the philosophy of love. Now, we had the philosophy of loneliness. Now we're talking about the philosophy of love. Now, the philosophy of love piggybacks on the philosophy of aloneness. We are taught from scriptures to love y'all, our Elohim, which is the first and the great commandment. So let's, let's pursue that. Let's turn into Matthew. We want to turn to Matthew chapter 22. Now here in Matthew chapter 22, we want to look at a few verses there in Matthew chapter 22. And when we get to the 22nd chapter of Matthew, we want to look at, uh, we want to start with verse number 37. Okay. Now in Matthew chapter 22, verse 37. This is Yeshua speaking. The Bible says, Yeshua said unto them, Thou shalt love Yahuwah thy Elohim with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy Elohim as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So what we're looking at here, he is telling them that the first commandment is to love Yah, to love him. And as we pointed out in the philosophy of loneliness, if Yah was only by himself all alone, he could neither share the making of his creation or the appreciation of it with anyone his equal. Let us presuppose that if he gave us the commandment to love Yah and our fellow man, then did not he himself also do the same? If Yah only existed by himself prior to his creation, he could he could truly love himself to fulfill the first great commandment. However, if one is to love, if one, if no one else is around during the creation, then the second commandment to love his neighbor would go lacking because there was nobody else. He could love himself, yes, but he could not love anybody else, nobody else around. Consequently, the philosophy of love goes deeper than merely loving Yah, even loving your neighbor. So he said the first great commandment is what? To love. He said the first great commandment is to love Yah first. And then he says, 
the next commandment that is next to that is to what? Love your neighbor. Okay, so you got two two loves going here. The first love is to love, love Elohim, and then the second love is to love your neighbor. Now, if he was the only Yah in existence, he could truly love himself, but he couldn't love his neighbor because he had no neighbor. Okay? But the question is that the love of Yah and the love of our neighbor is one thing, but when Yeshua talks about love, he takes it to a different level. Now, I want you to turn with me in the book of John, in John the 15th chapter. John the 15th chapter. And in John the 15th chapter, we want to look at verse number 13. Now, understand what we're saying now. We're saying if he was the only Elohim in existence, that our greatest love should be toward him, and our next love should be toward our neighbor, okay? Now, here's what Yeshua says. He's taking it further. Not only the love for Elohim and the love of fellow man, but he says this. He said, greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. So what he is saying here, if you truly got that love that I want you to have, you're going to love Elohim and you're going to love your neighbor, but you're going a little bit further. You're going to also love your neighbor so much that you will be willing to lay your life down for him. So our love for one another is limited for the most part to a living love. However, Yeshua extends the limit of our love to death, our willingness to die for our neighbor. Now, the question we would have for this type of love for an L or for a God would who existed all alone is that if he existed all alone, he is not capable of dying. How can he die? God can't die. So how can he give his life for us? If he, if he is Elohim all by himself, how can he give his life for him? Because he cannot die. Therefore, if Yah cannot die, then how could he make a plan of salvation by himself to save a fallen race in whom he loved? How can he, how can he save them if he can't die? If Yah loved mankind of whom he created, then such a love demand that provisions be made prior to his fall to redeem him. He couldn't wait until man sinned to come up with a plan of salvation if he, really, if he really loved him. Love sees beyond what is, but also what could be. When Yah would create man to walk upright, and man chose to walk contrary to it, Yah's yet a loving Yah would look beyond our faults and see our need. But if he hadn't discussed the dying for man's fall, no one else around but himself, how could he save fallen mankind on the spot? If he really loved man and he got a man to see that man was sin and he didn't have a plan of salvation, then 
would that be logical? Would that make sense? So when we look at it, how could he save fallen man and of whom he was not able to die for? It would have been rather chaotic if Yah hadn't discussed the plan of redemption with no one else, especially his son, who came forth from his seed, who was capable of dying. Would that have been fair or ethical to have waited for man to fall and then consult the one who could provide what was needed to save man, but he didn't even talk to him. I would think that Yah would have gotten with his son prior to the creation for the following reasons. If someone else had to die for fallen man other than Yah himself, should not that someone have been a choice, have been given a choice whether to do it or not? If I had to die for someone, shouldn't somebody come to me and say, well, you know, Richard, you have to die for someone. Shouldn't they come to me first and say that? Why would they wait until somebody die and then they come to me and say, well, you know, you got to die for the person. That would be unethical. That would not be reasonable. After all, the transgressor made the choice to transgress. He had the choice of to transgress or not. So should not the one who could save us have the same choice as a transgressor to be able to say, I will or I won't. Or whether he would be able to say, I would die or I would not. But what we are looking at, that it had to be more than two Elohims. It had to be more than two, because if you didn't have two and only had one, that one couldn't have died. So therefore, that couldn't have been a salvation for us. Now, we'll stop there and we'll pick up next week and we'll go back to the two Elohims in heaven. But we were trying to show the fallacy that if there was only one Elohim, then there was no no way that this creation or salvation could took, could have taken place. Okay. Um So now the angels was more created out of servitude. Uh yeah. Yeah, they yeah, um they were created out of servitude, yeah. But uh that was a broader plan. Um uh, they were they were created to give glory to Elohim. If you look uh-huh. in the book of Revelation, the angels can teach us a lot about worship and 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 praise. Mm-hmm. you know, that they give to Elohim. Yeah. Yeah, they were created for servitude, and their greatest, their greatest service that they, they enjoy is to serve him. Mm-hmm. That, that, that's their greater joy, the service that they give to him. They don't, they, they don't find no drudgery in serving Elohim like we do. They, they enjoy it. And, you know, that's interesting because he, it didn't seem like he made man out of servitude like he did the angels man it seems like it seems like even though he created the angels and they serve him it seems like it was a different dynamic there than with man that it was still some loneliness there for Mm -hmm. him to have created man close to close to him and the son 
and it and even to to the extent after he created man, he gave man dominion over the animals and everything mm-hmm. on this earth, just like he had dominion over pretty much the angels in heaven. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's like it seems like Yah was building, was creating people in his image, but with different personalities to kind of maybe fill that void of loneliness that maybe him and his son um, were experiencing. Yeah. I, I, you know, I can definitely appreciate that. Yeah. I, I would think so. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and then mm-hmm. when you go on to think about, okay, if they were going to fall, I'm going to put a salvation thing in place because after sin, it seems like, okay, uh, I have a love for these people, but at the same time, I want to have the genuine love come back to me because it's not genuine. What makes sense for you to come and confer with me if you don't truly love me like I love you? Mm-hmm. And um, and I think that's why, you know, we he, he's basically this whole world is a test to basically say, OK, do you truly love me? If you love me, then, you know, I want to spend eternity with you, mm-hmm. you know, like it was supposed to have been in the beginning. Like mm-hmm. I think. Adam and Eve with the Garden of Eden, you know, uh, it, it was a, basically a big test to see, yeah. okay, I created you, but is that love there that I have for you? You have the same love for me by following my directions. You pass this test, we got eternity to spend. But if you don't, then, okay, I have to put you through all these different tests throughout your life to kind of validate me giving you the eternal kingdom. Yeah, yeah, right. Uh, the tree of knowledge, of good and evil, was a, was a test. Mm-hmm. And if they had passed the test, no doubt he probably would have removed the uh, tree of knowledge, of good and evil. But in the meantime, Satan had fallen from heaven, and he even told them, you know, that they had fallen, mm-hmm. and they had a knowledge of that. But they sh- still chose to eat the fruit, mm-hmm. and that knocked it out of the ballpark of saying that now you must die. And the only way that uh, you can justify my law is that you must die. Mm-hmm. And if you die, you have to die eternally. So if you die eternally, you have justified and you 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 have uh, di- you have done justice in the universe by dying. But if I've, I've loved you so much that I don't want you to die eternally, mm-hmm. I want you to live forever. So. In order to do that, you had to have somebody who had never sinned and that was equal to Elohim because Elohim gave the law. So therefore, the law was equal to Elohim himself. Mm -hmm. So only somebody that was equal to the law could die for man. And so in doing that, he had to have a son to be able to come in who was equal to him in the sense that he was also Elohim because he came from Elohim. And he was equal to the law himself. Mm-hmm. So if a guilty man uh, sinned and could die, then that means if a person who was not sinful died in man's place, then that would mean that the person who died in his place was dying unjustly because he hadn't done anything to sin. But yet he was willing to die for man. So when he died 
for man, then man could now live in his place. He exchanged with man. So what we are looking at is that he wanted to uh, not only have man to pay for uh, what he did by death, but he wanted to give him life again. Mm -hmm. So in order to give him life, he had to get a person who was equal to the law. And when that man who was Yeshua, who was his seed, died, then when you look at the law, you say, was the law satisfied? Well, on man's side, since Yeshua had taken over his side of dying for him, even though he didn't sin, then when you look at the law, you say, well, how can a just man uh, die for the unjust? Well, that's what he did. Mm -hmm. So if that was what we might say unequal of a just person dying who didn't do anything, then it would also be justice that if we sin and we get life, then if you say that's unequal, well, you got two unequalities here. You got a person that is dying who didn't sin, and you got a person who is living who did sin. How can that be? Because the person who died for us who didn't sin, he is dying for us. And so when he took our place in death, then he gave us life. And when he gave us life, then our death sentence was done away with. So therefore, we not only uh, uh, can get life, but we can get it eternally like he intended for us to have before man sinned because uh innocent person died in our behalf. And this is what the Lamb of Elohim was all about. Um, now, Yah is both male and female. Mm -hmm. Now, are they considered one entity or are they individual? No, in his nature, when he made man, uh, that's the way he was. Uh, uh -huh. Now, did his nature change after he had his son? I'm not sure, but I think even even uh, though he had a feminine nature, he's he's masculine when it comes to being the father, not the mother. He just have uh, androgynous nature, but he's still considered uh, a, a male. Just like even a woman is really considered a male, but she is considered a male with the womb. Yeah. She's a female. That's why they call it a female. The male is still there, but due to the fact that she's a woman with the womb, she's still... Uh, She's still, uh, she's feminine, but she's also got some masculinity. But no, he's considered to still be a male. So it, I just want, so I just wonder then too, if the son is just like the father, the son had both male and female, but I wonder, did that change when he came to earth and was born through flesh? Well, I think when he came, well, no, he says, I think he was. Uh, he he brings out the fact that some people were eunuchs. Now, uh -huh. when you say a eunuch, um, it could be a eunuch in, in at least three different ways. Person person can still have the same genital organs and choose to be a eunuch, or a person can become a eunuch by being castrated from the you know with the genital organs. Then there's also a eunuch that 
he may not be castrated at all, but he chose to be a eunuch for the kingdom of Elohim. Mm -hmm. So when you looked at uh, 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 Yeshua as being the son of Elohim, I would think that if he is a son, that the seed that came forth from the father was identical in the sense that he would still be a son and not a daughter. Mm -hmm. And so if he was a son and not a daughter, I would think that that seed would produce another male and not a female. And I don't know if he had the same androgynous nature as his father due to the fact that he came forth from the father, which I guess he could have had a woman, but mm -hmm. he, he, he brought forth a, a, a male. And even the father, because he's a father, is identifying more with the male structure, even though his androgynous nature has both of them in there. I would think that Yeshua was primarily uh, taken away from the father as a seed of being a son in the sense of only having the male traits and not the, uh, the female. But so, but I wonder why would he create an Adam with, uh, with both? Uh, because he's, he, when he created Adam, I think Adam, uh, he created him with the intention of, of making sure that, uh, everything came from one. Okay. You know, and, and if everything is coming from one, then when Adam fell in love with Eve, he was really falling in love with himself because she was a part of him. Yeah. And so when he brought Adam into being, I would think that he was of an androgynous nature, but now he's saying that now that you're here, I'm going to divide you. You're going to be the man. She's going to be the woman mm -hmm. and y'all going to compensate one, one another. And for the billions of people that we see on earth, it started with one person. That one person was divided to man and woman, and those man and woman, they populated the entire earth with the billions of people that we see today. Mm -hmm. So, yes, he had an androgynous nature when he, he was made, mm -hmm. but then when he took the rib and built a woman, then that made two individuals. Okay. All right, and I think with that, we head over to our next segment. Up next is Let's Talk About That. So I want to talk about uh, Revelation, the 18th chapter, verse 4. And we see in these last days a lot of things going on, whether with religions, churches, even our own mindset. And I want to kind of deal with what it means to come out of her, my people. Mm. So if you have your Bibles and you can turn with me into Revelation, the 18th chapter, verse 4. And it reads, And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, that you be not partakers of her sins, and that you receive not of her plagues. So, Pastor, I wanted to ask you, does come out of her, my people, mean our mindset must come out of the oppression, which is Egypt or Babylon? No, that, that has some credence uh, to the coming out of her. Mm -hmm. uh, now, Egypt is mentioned, you know, it's mentioned in the uh, book of Revelation, but I think it's mentioned symbolically of the sense that uh, down in Egypt where Moses was, that they uh, had many false 
Elohims down there. And so as a result of having those false gods, uh, that was a form of Egypt. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was a form of Egypt because they didn't believe in the one who created the heavens and the earth. And they have these false Elohims that they were worshiping. So Egypt is a form of uh, idolatry and uh, worshiping false Elohims. So that was a part of it. But when he talks about come out of uh, her, uh, that you be not partakers of her sins, uh, he's talking about a a system of worship. Uh, I think earlier in our last uh, series that we had, we talked about the mark of the beast. Mm -hmm. And when you deal with the mark of the beast, it was a religious system. And we was trying to point out that uh, a lot of time we deal with deal with uh, sin or the mark of the beast, we're not just dealing with the mark of the beast, but we deal with a mark of the beast system. It has a system. Mm-hmm. Okay. What is that system? Well, the system of uh, the mark of the beast is that they have set up a false sense of, of worship for people to follow. And what we pointed out during that time of the mark of the beast was that uh, Elohim has a Sabbath. And we find that um, in the mark of the beast, they have a a, a, a spurious Sabbath. They have a false Sabbath. Elohim says the seventh day of the Sabbath. They say the first day of the Sabbath. Mm-hmm. So not only do you have this the the two Sabbath, the true and the false, but you also have a true and a false Sabbath system. And so when you deal with the system, Elohim tells to keep you know, his true feast days, which would be Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, Pentecost, Feast of Trumpets, Feasts of Atonement, and Feast of Tabernacles. And the devil says, I got a Sabbath, which is Sunday, but I also have my false system as well. I have Easter, Christmas, and um um, and, and and like St. Patrick's Day and and uh, all of these false days that I've set up, that's my system. So we have to come out of all of that. Mm-hmm. You know, devil says you could eat anything you want. Elohim says you should not eat things that is not uh, kosher, that is found in the Torah. Mm-hmm. And devil have a way of dress and... Elohim has a way of dress that we should wear certain things, and they have a way of dress that they can wear provocative anything. So when you look at the system, he says, I'm calling you out of that system of worship, that you come back to my way of worship. And when you can come back to that, then you're in a true system. So he's calling them out of a system of worship Mm -hmm. that is not uh, what we might say becoming of the child or his children to be able to worship. And so a lot of people want to stay in those false forms of worship. They say, well, I can still dress right. I can eat right in, in a false system of worship. But -hmm. the thing about it is, uh, you may can do that, but Elohim is saying, if you can do all of what I'm telling you to do, he said, come out of that end. See the whole message that Elohim is preaching to the world is not to stay there and worship and try to do the things he want to do. He said, come out of there. 
he said, I want you to separate from, from it. Because when you look at Revelation 18, 14, he said, I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out of her, my people. So the whole message that we are preaching in the last days is to come out from among the false worshipers that ye be not partakers of a sins. He said, now, if you're trying to do right and you're going to stay there, that you actually partake of a sins. Mm-hmm. And he said, if you're going to partake of a sins, then you're also going to receive the plagues. So the whole message is to come out of her, come out of a false sense of worship and come into a, a true sense with those who are abiding by his system of worship rather than the pseudo form of worship, which is coming from Satan. So let me ask this then um, with even the religions are most of these religions technically part of the world. Mm-hmm. Not really part of uh, trying to do what Yah wants to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of them are part of the, part of the world. Just like the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you know, and you're going to find good and evil in all churches. Even a true church might have some evil, but mm-hmm. what you're looking at is uh, are they striving to do his will and going wrong or are they not even teaching his will and going wrong? Mm-hmm. So uh, even among the 12 disciples, you know, they made many mistakes, but they were with the one who had given them the perfect example. Mm-hmm. And so even... Uh, when they did wrong, uh, they can be corrected because they had the right example. But when we talk about today, all these religions and stuff, uh, first of all, are they teaching the correct doctrines? And then the second thing is, if they're not teaching it, then how would, how would you know it? Mm. Well, the only way you can know it is by comparing what they're doing with the Bible. And if they're not living by the Bible, then it's false worship. You have to come out. Yeah. If you're in a church, they're making mistakes and stuff like that, but they're actually teaching you the correct way, then it's not like they're not teaching it. It's just that you're not living it. But 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 the way that they are teaching is is truth. And how do you measure truth? You had to marriage about the Torah. And that's the, that's his word that he spoke to Moses on Mount, Mount Sinai. So if you're not being taught his word and you're being taught error, mm-hmm. then you got two strikes. Number one, it's not being taught. And number one, and number two, you're not living it, and you don't even have a standard to even go by. Yeah, and, you know, uh, and I think a lot of people don't really compare what they're doing with Scripture. I think they just go along with whatever the organization does, and they happy with that, you know. Yeah, that's true. And, you know, I think it's very few that really study and really question uh how they're living and what they're living, you know, because it seems like a lot of these religions, especially the ones that, you know, believe in a higher power, they make justifications for a lot of things or what they do, you know, um, even though a lot of it maybe it's not even really backed up by scripture, you know. Yeah. Well, I think one reason why uh, a lot of people don't, uh, study scriptures behind the leaders that are teaching that is simply because of the fact they don't want the responsibility. In other words, they can say, well, if I'm going wrong, it ain't my fault. It's my leader. Yeah. So, so nobody wants to take responsibility for their own life. They say, well, if the mistake is made, then my, my leader made it. But see, that's a, that's a poor premise to build your life upon something that you don't take responsibility for. And you give somebody else the responsibility of saying whether you're going to be saved or lost. 
I would not want to come before Elohim, and Elohim says, well, you didn't do my will. And you say, well, my leader, he didn't teach it to me. And then uh, Elohim would look at you and say, what is your personal responsibility? If you had a leader and he used the scriptures, did you study behind him to see whether this was true or not? Mm-hmm. And if you say, well, no, I just left it to my leader. Well, Elohim will say, well, okay, did your leader, did he have a heaven for you or did he have a hell for you? Mm-hmm. You say, no, he didn't have that for me. Well, but why would you be led by him rather than the one who have given you the scriptures to study? Yeah. And if you think that you're going to get in or out of my kingdom simply because you left it all the way up to your leader now, there is some responsibility for that leader. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you also have a responsibility to study behind that leader. Because when you deal with the book of Revelation in the 19th chapter, it says the false prophet uh, and the beast, they were put in the lake of fire. Mm-hmm. So if you didn't take time to understand what your leader was saying and teaching to you and you wanted the, all the responsibility to follow him and no responsibility to follow on you, then you have no credentials to get into my kingdom. Mm. And so if you look at the place that was made for the false prophet and the beast, they were burned there. And then later on, Satan, who instigated them to do that, he'll be put in the same burning fire that the beast and the false prophet was put into. Mm. So we can't use the excuse that my leader said it. Mm-hmm. You have to study behind your leader. This is why he gave us the word personally for ourselves that we can use common sense to know what is right and wrong. And if what you're doing cannot be found in scriptures, then it's not something Elohim wants you to do. But if it's found in scripture, that's what he wants you to do. Yeah. And, you know, I, I just because, you know, I look at television, especially the news and everything as programming, which they say it is programming, but I think it's mentally programming. And before mm-hmm. television, the church and religion was uh, was about and it kind of makes sense that the, the church before television was a form of programming because they would take with scriptures from the Bible and pro- try to program you to live a life they want you to live. Uh You know, and one thing I, you know, I said it before when it came to the slave Bible, you know, using the slave Bible and taking a lot of things out was um, the slave master's way of trying to keep the slaves in line and keep them slaves by programming and all, you know? And so I, I just think that is what the church is also here for just like television, because, I mean, if you're getting the same programming from television as you get in the church pulpit, most people are going to follow because it's like this is what the majority are doing. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah, well, not only are they uh, going along with the narrative of the world, mm-hmm. but they're also trying to justify their stance in doing what they're doing. Yeah. So if I can get the majority to follow them, quite naturally, I'll say, you know, if everybody doing this, this might be right. But Elohim never measured right and wrong by how many follow. Because mm-hmm. if that was the case, then you n- never would have had uh, the flood or Sodom and Gomorrah. Because mm-hmm. those were the fewer people that were saved. The rest were destroyed. So truth is me- measured by what Elohim says, not by the number who are following it. Yeah. Well, Pastor, can you 
take us to the throne as we get ready to uh, close out this podcast for this week. Okay. Loving Father, we thank you for another session that we could study about the seed and to see some of the anomalies and the discrepancies and the fallacies of how people interpret Scripture. And so as we continue to study this, we ask that you would continue to guide our minds that we may understand the essence of what we are dealing with when we deal with the seed. And we ask, O Heavenly Father, that as we understand more and more of what is going on in the world and how many who are teaching the Word are teaching it incorrectly and doing away with things that should not have been done away with and putting things in your Word that should not be there and leading many to go on the road of a false situation that they have built up to make people believe that they are going to go to the kingdom regardless of what they do. But the Bible doesn't teach that. And so we've asked, Lord, that as people listen and as they understand that they may constantly go to the Word whenever something is preached to see whether those things are so or not. So we ask, O Father, that we who teach the Word, that if there's anything in the Word that we are not teaching correctly, that it may be brought to our attention, that we can restudy it to be able to be in line with your truth. So as we go through the rest of this Shabbat, give us a blessing, both to him who speaks and the hosts, as well as those who listen, that we may have a Sabbath day's blessing. And when we come again into a new week, may we be so refreshed that we can better do the task that you have given to us. So bless, keep, guide, and direct each one of us individually as well as collectively. Bless our families, our loved ones. And we thank you for all of the blessings that you've given us thus far. And as we lift up and extol your name and give you the praise that you only are worthy, we give your name the praise, the honor, and the glory, majesty, dominion, power, and all of the thanks for your wonderful blessings and for the greater blessing of Yeshua, the Messiah, that you have given to us, which is your seed. We pray and ask, Lord, that we may lift him up and give him the glory that he is due. And finally, Lord, when the plan of salvation is over and you redeemed us, we can be able to give you the praise and the glory throughout eternity, world without end, is our prayer in Yeshua's name. And for his dear sake, we do pray. Amen. Amen. And amen. Amen. That is our podcast for this week. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to email us at signsofthecovenant at gmail.com. Know therefore that Yahuwah is Elohim, the faithful El, which guards his covenant and mercy with them that love him and guard his commandments to a thousand generations. Until next week, Shalom. <laughs>